This is Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Hello, I'm Carol Masser. Welcome to the Bloomberg Business Week Weekend Podcast. In this episode, we'll bring you news of the week, insights from the magazine, and more. In this week's broadcast, one of the world's fittest CEOs is looking at a new way to motivate his staff. Plus, the mobility revolution, well, it's almost here. In fact, it is this week's cover story. But first, my co-host Jason Kelly was in Berlin this week at Super Return. This is the largest private equity gathering in the world. He caught up with some of the biggest names in PE, from Michael Araghetti from Aries and Bruce Flatt from Brookfield. He also sat down with Carlyle Group co-CEO Song Lee. Here's that conversation. So, Q, what's the mood here in Berlin? People seem pretty upbeat. Oh, a lot of energy, as always. But, you know, there's always the same issues on their people's minds. What's happening to the economy? What are returns going to be doing? But it's really a great place where so many folks from all over the world show up. And it's kind of like speed dating. You're, yeah. you're meeting all of your best friends and your clients all at the same time. And so, let's talk about your clients. Sure. The biggest investors in the world. What's their biggest concern right now? What's the question, if you can generalize, right. that they're continuing to ask you? Well, I think they're asking us, what do we see out there? Are we seeing recession? How much softness is there? And kind of pull it all together for us. All of this geopolitical uncertainty, what does that really mean for the global outlook? So that, that's answer? a big, well, we're seeing growth moderate, but it's not stalling. Okay. And there's enough momentum in the economies around the world that we don't foresee a recession in 2019, but I, I'd be remiss if I didn't say there is a little bit of uncertainty around. Well, what what happens after 2019? What happens in 2021? And a lot, you know, a large a large part of it will be dependent on what happens with policy responses as well as uh, how geopolitical events uh, unfold. So, what do you make of the case, the argument that? Private equity could use a little bit more uncertainty, a little bit more volatility in sure. the market to you know, maybe bring some valuations down right. and maybe broaden the opportunity set a right. little bit. I actually am more a fan of that argument than I'm not, in, in the sense that I think recalibration is healthy. And you have to understand, Jason, the, the past 10 years, we've all been conditioned to an absence of volatility, right? The central banks were very, very accommodative. Global economies were all growing together. And so there was an absence of volatility. Now volatility is back. And it does mean, more likely than not, that returns will disperse. Because when times get tougher and it gets harder to do things, you're going to see separation of performance from those institutions that can really deliver performance in good times and bad, and those where maybe there was a little bit more of a, the rising tide that generated the returns in the recent past. So I actually think this recalibration, resetting, uh, resetting kind of well, at what price deals clear, I think the ability to manage through softer economic times, I, all that is probably better than not in terms of kind of recalibrating and, and helping to reset expectations. So like many of your peers, you guys have a, a suite of things that you're presenting to investors, sure. some, you know, some liquid, some illiquid, some different uh, types of uh, assets. What is the hardiest appetite for uh, at this moment and at this part of the cycle? Okay, I think the desire for illiquid private equity uh, and the superior rates of return that the asset class has generated, uh, relative outperformance against public market indices consistently, three, five, 10, 25 years, no matter how you measure it, that continues to be in demand. I think the LPs are thinking about how do I concentrate more investing dollars with fewer general partners? And who are the institutions I can really get behind to develop strategic relationships and do more with? I think the private credit asset class is also expanding. Yeah. People are realizing that maybe um, there is a benefit in doing things more directly and disintermediating uh, the public markets via private capital. I think those types of uh, investing strategies are becoming more and more uh, of interest to, to limited partners. Seem to be bulking up the team a little bit in, in right. certain areas, especially right. as uh, you and Glenn Youngkin right. you know, settle into your uh, co-CEO roles, uh, especially on the, the public uh, or the more liquid uh, side. What, do you, what are you doing there? What's next? Well, the, the good news is we're not really doing that much on the public market liquid side. Uh, the most publicly, uh, the most liquid uh, asset class we probably do anything in is in our private credit, credit, uh, our CLO business, where we're in the performing loan, syndicated loan business. But 
if you take a step back, we are a private capital, global private capital investment manager. We like what we can do on the private capital investing side. We think there's real trends where private capital is growing in terms of importance in the global economy at the expense, actually, of public capital. And I think that trend is what we're positioning the firm to take advantage of increasingly in the future. Private equity, private credit, private real estate, private infrastructure. So those, you know, staying private, having control, driving real value uh, at our portfolio companies and our investments, that's what we're looking to do in the future. So as you look at 19 across Carlisle's empire, are you a net buyer or a net seller? <laughs> both. And uh, I always answer that question, of course we're both, because we're so large and we're so all over the place in terms of the, uh, our geographic presence, in terms of our multi-asset class approach. We always have to be buying and we always have to be selling at any given point in time. Right. Uh, in general, it's hard for me to say I'm a net seller or a net buyer, but certainly, if we can take money off the table at the high valuations that are being afforded today, we are being aggressive about it. So valuations still pretty high at this moment. I would say public market valuations have tended to come down, but private market valuations have not really followed as much in, in, in the Western uh, economies. In, in China, public market valuations are around 30%, and private market valuations are starting to drift down. Okay. But at least in the U.S., we're seeing still elevated private equity value. And what accounts levels. for that divergence? I think in the states right now, there's been a flight to quality, resilience. It's the economy that's still fairly healthy growing uh, uh, in, a, in a continuous, steady way. And uh, people will pay for resiliency. People will pay for the types of companies where there's safety. And so you're seeing that in addition to all the capital that exists in our industry which is an issue, the dry powder, that's keeping a floor on valuations for now. That's Carlyle Group co-CEO Song Lee speaking with Jason Kelly at the Super Return Conference in Berlin. This story was among our most read on the Bloomberg Terminal during the week, and it's about what some may say is the world's fittest CEO. He follows a strict workout regimen for himself and those who really work for him or who interview him. Our Josh Dean knows about that firsthand. He's a reporter who wrote about the CEO of Bjorn Borg this week. What a great and fun story. And it really was. Everybody on the Bloomberg Terminal was reading it. First of all, tell us about where you went, you landed, and what happened. <laughs> so I flew overnight from New York to Stockholm because that's what you do when you're going to Europe, right? <laughs> and um, I didn't sleep on the plane because I don't sleep on planes. And I'm thinking I'm going to check into my hotel and rest. And no, uh, basically, as soon as I checked in, my phone rings and it was Henrik Bunga's assistant. He's the CEO of Bjorn Borg saying, can you get here in 20 minutes? And I'm like, okay, you know, I'm, I'm here for work. Right. I can sleep later. You're doing a story on him and his company. I am. I should just take all the time I'm going to get. So I hop in a cab and go over there and he immediately throws throws a motorcycle helmet at me. I get on the back of his motorcycle and then we go kayaking. It just sort of went from there. Yeah, I, I fell in the that lake. That happens every time I'm doing a profile with somebody. <laughs> I get there, I get a Ducati and I go to go kayaking. I mean, within the first hour of knowing him, I'd ridden on the back of his motorcycle, gone kayaking with him, done a workout after that, taken a shower with him and his coworkers, gone back to the office. And, and can I just say they took a shower without any clothes, right? Yes. This is what happens. I mean, there was nothing untoward about no, that. I know, it's just I know. like being at the gym, except like that's not usually how it works. But this was your interview against... subject, right? right. <laughs> so tell us who this guy is. And if, if as you read this story that you uh, reported, I mean, this is who this guy is. He's a former Swedish Special Forces uh, sergeant who then set a record skiing to the North Pole, became a business consultant sort of talking about that experience, and then has sort of imposed this, what seems like a really strict philosophy and what he calls framework onto his businesses, which is all about setting and achieving goals. But a big part of it is like, it's not just about your work. It's about wellness overall. And fitness is a part of that. And Bjorn Borg is a fitness company. So he really pushes this fitness. And to the extent that on Fridays at uh, every Friday morning, the company shuts down and everybody in the company works out together. All of its offices. For an hour. Wherever they are. Yep. Um, Even the board during board meetings. I mean, if you're injured, you can get out of it. And obviously, if you have a personal crisis, you don't have to go. But if you're like feeling well and you're in the office, you work out with the team. What's his thinking behind this? And I understand, you know, there's a lot of management books that are out there, Josh, and I'm sure you're well aware of them. And there's all these different philosophies. But, it, you know, his seems to be a very disciplined 
one when it comes to time, when it comes to working out, when it comes to approaching everything, goals, all that stuff. I mean, his thing about time is it, it's one of the easiest ways to, to show that you, you're disciplined and that you care. Like there's kind of no excuse for running over or being late. I mean, there are excuses, but on a day-to-day basis, you should be on time. If you set a meeting, it should start when you say it'll start. It should right. end when they say it'll end. Respect for the other person and whatever's going on. Exactly. So he says, I will act exactly as I tell you. Don't tell my husband because I'm notoriously late to everything. (laughs) But anyway, go ahead. And then with fitness, it's sort of like, you know, healthy mind, healthy body. Um, It seems extreme, but the people there seem to like it, you know, and they also have all kinds of seminars and and you can meditate if you want. And they have life coaches who come in and, you know, there's healthy food. And but it's also like they leave at a decent hour. He's sort of, you know, one of the things is, you know, if you follow a schedule and you get done what you say you're going to get done, then you should be able to leave at a normal hour and have a personal life. And Swedes take a lot of vacation. They take like August off. I think it's actually July in Sweden. So it's just kind of is this just a story about a cool guy with a cool philosophy, management philosophy and what he does? with his employees? Or is it somebody who does this and gets results? Because well, he, he is CEO of a company. He is. And he's been and he's been CEO of two companies now and then was managing director of Adidas. Adidas, Adidas Sweden. Right? Uh, Adidas Scandinavia. Yeah. And and he worked at Haston's, the, the fancy mattress company before that. So he does get results. And I think, you know, though it may not be for everybody, the people who work there seem to really like it. And it's not like... I see people read this and they're like, I wouldn't want to do that. Well, you don't have to work there. And if you do work there, I didn't get the sense they were putting on an act for me. Like people seem to be into it. Right, right. When you say he gets results, I mean, financial results, do people set goals and it makes a difference on the top and bottom lines of the company? I mean, the sales are up every year so far that he's been there. Of course, retail, especially premium retails, it's a tough business. I mean, he's competing against Amazon and online, all the online retailers and discounters. And it's really hard to sell clothes at the price that you need to sell them at to make money. Money. I mean, right. this is new, not news across the industry, but he is making money. I think part of that, you know, I think maybe the thing I didn't write about, but and it, I'm not sure it's exactly what he's after, but there is a lifestyle element of this, which is like your brand needs to mean something to people. If they're going to buy Bjorn Borg versus Adidas, they need to know what Bjorn Borg means. And I think maybe well, accidentally by what he's doing and this message he's putting out there, like it gives an identity to the brand, right? Well, it's funny that you say identity of the brand because it was initially created by the tennis player, speak about identity, but he's no longer affiliated. Right. That's, it's funny for me to say that he's identified, he's trying to build a brand for Bjorn Borg. I mean, Bjorn Borg is one of the most t- famous tennis players in history. Right. He's no longer affiliated. He founded the company mostly to make underwear, sort of fancy underwear. Right. Um, he has since been bought out and now it's just a name. It, and, it, and it though it, I guess to some people will always symbolize Bjorn Borg who's a great athlete to younger people. He's not really a famous person anymore. And, and there's a kind of a new brand identity developing. Um, it's interesting too. And they often call it now Borg, right? To kind of, yeah, the clothing, uh, most of the clothing just has Borg on it. I just want to go back to the framework. Cause I feel like this is something that drives everything he does. And you, you put in your story, he, he, you know, he uses it with everything. We need to know where we're going, where we are, what to do, how we are and why we're here doing this. And that kind of guides so much? It does. In fact, it's very formalized. They've got a software program they use where you set a series of goals based on that framework that are reviewed with your supervisor every month. And then with with Henrik or someone very senior at the end of the year. And they're not just professional goals, actually. Some of them are supposed to be personal, which is like, I need to work out more this month. I need to spend more time with my children. I need to be a better husband or wife. Um, so it's, it's meant to be overall wellness, making you a better person, which makes you a better employee. Now, a lot of the right. goals are, of course, related to your work. It's like, I need to, you know, be a better manager. I need to sell more to my customer, you know, or if I'm in, you know, HR, I don't know what that would be. Some, something that re- pertains to your job, right. Well, I'm curious why you wanted to do a story or how this came to your knowledge. I, I'm, I'm sort of drawn to extremists and, and, um, Weirdo is an unfair term, I think, because I don't think he's actually that weird. But yeah. but unusual characters in business is sort of my beat, I guess, if I have one for Business Week. And, right. and, and I saw a story in the Harvard Business Review, actually, about him because some Swedish professors were doing a bit of a sociological study um, of, of whether this was a good thing or a bad thing. They were looking for an extreme example of wellness in the workplace. And they were like, this guy, it's got to be nuts. And, and what happened is they went and embedded there for a year and they found out like employees don't seem upset about it. And though it looks extreme, it seems to be working in terms of like employee satisfaction. And obviously sales are good. 
Yeah. Well, I think it's actually very timely because how many times do we do stories about how companies are kind of shifting? They're thinking about their employees' balance of life. A younger generation is more interested in this kind of thing. So maybe this is to the extreme, but people are looking at how to do things differently, right? You know, there was this image for a long time that it was like the French king, the sort of gout approach to CEO, right? You're like all about spending your money on excess. And now it's like, let's be in shape because if we're in shape, then the company's in good shape. Great story. Fun story. Um, So nice to talk to you about it. Thank you. It would become the deadliest and most damaging blaze in California history. Blame and responsibilities, they continue to be discussed, but there is a much bigger issue and concern at hand. And that is about the cost of adjusting to and hopefully mitigating climate change. Let's get into this story about PG&E. Drake Bennett tells us, and I did say to you that, God, I feel like we covered PG&E. G&E so much, um, the disaster, the bankruptcy, you really dig deep into kind of what's been going on at the, at the, at the company and with the backdrop of, of climate change. So before we get into that, take us back to November 8th and one individual in particular, which is how you start your story. Uh, well, there's a man named Lane Mason who I uh, talked to, um, who is a, his, his job description is a troubleman, which means he's a, he's a lineman for PG&E, but he's, he specializes in fixing things when they go wrong. So he was in uh, the company's yard in Chico, and he got this call to go to this town called Paradise, which is nearby. It's in the foothills of the Sierra Nevada Mountains. This is all California. Right. Northern California. PG&E is one of the big three mm-hmm. utilities um, there. And, uh, you know, he gets up there and he starts seeing smoke. He starts seeing a stream of of cars coming the other way and then he gets to town right as this giant fire that had started just a few minutes before uh, a few miles away arrives in town and it would end up you know burning destroying the town killing uh, you know over 80 people and he was there basically trying to you know deal with all of the broken sort of downed infrastructure of the pg infrastructure to let firefighters through to try to help people get out so he, I thought, was an interesting way into the story because he's a PG&E employee and he was really on the front lines when the fire came through. Right. Uh, trying to trying to protect people, trying to protect, um, sort of help manage the problem. But at the same time, that very morning, PG&E files this report with its regulators saying, we may have started the fire. You know, our equipment... Uh, which is a fairly common occurrence, power lines will, especially at the really dry conditions in the California summer, will send sparks into the vegetation and start fire. So PG&E files report that says we had an outage on this particular hillside where the fire seems to have started. So Lane is in town for a couple of weeks working and, you know, he gets this mixed reception. Some people are really happy to see him there. Other people are, uh, you know, yelling profanities when they see his truck because they really blame this company for, you know, as you said, the worst, deadliest fire in California history. Well, and it, and it, and it brings up a lot of different questions, right? Because you kind of get in, you get into this in the story about, you know, the environment because of climate change has impacted areas like California. We think of the fires in wine country. Mm-hmm. Things are drier. Vegetation, mm-hmm. there used to be fires to kind of get rid of some vegetation, right? right. Uh, that doesn't happen anymore. So that when there is a fire, there's a lot of dry kindling basically all ready to burn up. Talk to me a little bit about that. Right. So there's, there's, it's hard with a lot of these things, it's hard to pin it on any one cause. So as, as you mentioned, there's, there's this sort of decades of fire management policy that, that suppressed these fires that would have cleared out some of the undergrowth. People are moving into these areas where they didn't used to live. These, the sort of what's called the urban wildland interface. So they're now in these, you know, forests that burn. These fires didn't used to be a problem for people, but, you know, exacerbating all of this and adding to it is climate change. and, and, you know, the, it's, it's making the summers drier and hotter, which means things burn more readily. It also seems to be changing precipitation patterns. There used to be a pretty, mm-hmm. uh, pretty reliable end to the fire season in California with the, you know, the first rains of the fall. And that seems to be shifting. So now you see these horrible fires in October, even November. So more fires, deadlier fires. That's probably the future. Well, when you set out to do this story, I'm curious what your mission was, because, you know, certainly from a business story, we know about the stock collapsing, the CEO resigning, right? We know about the bankruptcies, we know about the lawsuits. So there's that story that we have covered a lot. But then you throw in this kind of the environment is changing and maybe that is impacting companies and there needs to be different ways to kind of plan for this. Exactly. I think And who's responsible? Right. So the, there are these questions of who's responsible and and I think 
part of what makes that both tricky and interesting is that, you know, utilities, uh, investor and utilities are these weird kind of hybrid beasts where they're these, you know, private entities, but they're performing this public good. Right. And so they're really caught highly in the Highly regulated. Right. Highly regulated. And uh, the, right. What they can charge is determined by the, the government. And, and so this, que- and, and so I think they're this interesting vehicle to look at this question of how, who's going to bear the costs of this changing environment when we have more of these catastrophes, whether they're fires or floods and hurricanes or whatever. So like, cause that's, there's a line that sticks out for me. Um, it's also a multi-billion dollar case study for, for a set at one of abstract questions about corporate responsibility, societal risk, and climate change. So where do like, where do we go with all of this? Right. I mean, I think the the situation in California is going to have to change because yeah. uh, you know S and P came out with this report recently that said you know there's another fire season coming up this summer. You know, it's it's pretty. It's they. You know, they're not going to be surprised if another if if a second California utility declares bankruptcy if they get hit with a big fire. And so we have to figure out. You know, it's it's there clearly need to be these questions. If a company has been negligent, we need to figure it out and we need to address that. It's a fascinating story. There's a lot more information in here too as well. So everybody should ultimately read it out online or at the, on the Bloomberg. Drake, thank you so much. Thanks, so let's get more on the global auto industry in this week's business special section. Editor Jim Ellis is here to take us around the globe. And Jim, let's start in London because they have imposed a fee in that city. And that's definitely impacted the amount of cars in London. Oh, yeah. And that's definitely cut down the number of cars that go into central London by about a fifth. I mean, that's a lot. And because uh, basically you have to pay. If you want to drive into the city, it's about, I guess, 11 and a half pounds, which comes up to be about 15 bucks. And um, that adds up. And what we're discovering is that, um, you know, one way to get consumers attention and um, to keep them from going places you don't want them to go is to actually put a tax on it. It works, right? It works. So this idea of uh, what they call a congestion tax, Mm -hmm. it sort of keeps people from coming out and sort of uh, makes the uh, central city um, an easier to maneuver place. Now, that kind of congestion tax is actually being, or at least these types of of, of ideas of how do you cut down uh, people coming in in the center cities is not just there. You're seeing it there. You're seeing it in Mexico City. You're seeing it now uh, considered in uh, Spain. I mean, this is the future. New York. They've talked about and New York. talking about it now right. in New York. I mean, this is the future when it comes to you know how do we either reduce the amount of pollution. Or how do we just get rid of all the traffic? And the easiest way is to either charge people more to come in and out, which is the way London is doing it, or to uh, basically just restrict. You said it's cut the number of cars that are entering the city in London by about 30%. So it's got a, I'm assuming then there's some effect in terms of auto sales overall that people are saying, well, if I can't drive there, maybe I don't need a car. Well, that's the issue that um, more and more people will suddenly say, huh, you know, I can't deal with that. We we um, uh, looked also in this package at uh, San Francisco, mm-hmm. which has um, uh, a lot of employer support for providing alternatives to owning your own car. I mean, we've all heard about you know the Google Shuttle, yeah. and um, you know, but it's not just that. I mean, there's scores of companies there that are providing um, you know shuttle services or subsidized transit to get you to work, so you don't have to actually deal with that horrible traffic between San Francisco and the Valley, right? And um, because of the other problem of housing problem, which you guys just dealt with in right. the magazine, a couple it's. In- too expensive to right. live close to work. And so therefore, people are either moving farther and farther away because of expense or simply because some people, especially younger people, may not be ready for a suburban location. They want to live closer to center cities. But in, in that area, unlike a lot of cities, I mean, a lot of the jobs, a lot of the highest paying jobs are actually away from the center city. Right. It's interesting. And we'll talk about China, too, because I feel like climate change certainly plays into all of right. this. You talk about trying to reduce the population in cities. What's interesting, too, is right, London is also looking to do maybe another second fee on older cars. Right. I mean, the whole idea there is that older cars are also the most polluting cars. Mm-hmm. And so as there's a big shift you know, globally, but particularly in China and in Europe, to um, you know, get rid of cars that um, you know emit a lot of uh, you know gases. What they're doing is uh, putting either preferences for electric cars, or you know, as they're doing in Beijing, or coming up with um, you know the ways to punish you for driving old clunkers, which are the most polluting. And that is an issue that's going to come up now in London with an extra fee on those. That, in a way, will either make some people say either I have to have a newer car, but more likely 
maybe I don't need the car after all, right. especially since I've got to pay all this money to have it. Well, it's interesting. I think you talk about somebody, uh, you guys cover somebody in London and what it costs them, I think, to go to go in. And or, or and that's some of what people are thinking. Okay, so if I get an Uber or I get in a Lyft, right. you know, what does it cost me for a year? And maybe Well, sometimes people say it just, it just I'm, I'm not going to do it. I yeah. mean, we have um, in somewhere in the package, we have a, a, a guy in Boston who is saying, you know, it's costing him, you know, a lot of money. And it's not just money, mm-hmm. you know, to um, it's costing him time. And what he's saying is that, you know, it, by using, you know, these mobility services like Uber and Lyft, I get back an hour, hour and a half a day of my time. Right. Now, obviously, he's a CEO <laughs> and he says. So the 20000 it costs right, a year to Right, he says fifteen, twenty thousand $20,000 that he's paying for basically not having a car. And he, he traded in his luxury car and he's just basically, you know, using these services. But he says right. at my salary level, getting that hour and a half back, he says, is worth a lot of money. And it gives him a piece of his life back as well. Well, speaking about worth a lot of money, the car industry overall is worth a lot of money to Germany, right? This is where you've got um, the biggest automaker of the world based and really home to when it comes to the biggest manufacturers of luxury cars. Right. What this, this changing evolution, if we're hitting car peak, if we're moving away from the combustible engine, what does this mean for something like Germany? Well, that was um, I mean, the, the idea that Germany is the center of car culture in a lot of ways. It's sort of where the where most people consider the internal combustion engine that have been built, you know, that been invented, and it's the place that um, it, it's car heaven in a lot of ways. And you know, the autobahn, you know, with no speed right. limits. It this is where you go if you're serious about cars. And the car revolution has basically, you know, been become a big deal from a business standpoint for them. Autos are the largest industry in Germany. It also um, uh, employs almost a million Germans. I mean, it is a huge piece of their economy. And the thought that you sort of top out in the number of unit cars sold suddenly has a sort of chilling effect in a place like that. They're having to deal with already the notion of switching from internal combustion engines to electric vehicles. And that's important simply because electric vehicles take fewer people to make. Right. And so therefore, employment was going to go down anyway as we start going to the ship, but you take it to the next level, which is longer term. We're talking about fewer cars overall, regardless of type of cars. And that has an impact in Germany simply because a big piece of their middle class is- I love this part of the story. big piece of yeah. the middle class is built on non-college educated people mm-hmm. who can go to work in an auto business and basically have middle class lifestyles. It's sort of what the US was in the 60s and right. 70s with Detroit before Detroit basically got rid of the unions. Right. I take it to the middle class. So yes. what's Germany doing, right? Uh, they're not uh, a nation just you know, kind of take things lying down. Yeah, well, they're they're working on the idea of preparing people for the shift, the initial shift, which is the shift toward um, uh, moving toward electric vehicles. But overall, there's not a lot you can do when, yeah. um, you know, you're, so much of your economy is built on basically pushing metal. A big piece of the German sort of corporate uh, idea is that they've decided to become huge or even bigger in the markets where cars are still expected to grow, most notably China. Right. I mean, China is the largest auto market in the world. And, you know, Volkswagen is the biggest company, you know, it, biggest part of this business you is in China. S- you took my segue because that's what I wanted to say. From the home of the biggest auto manufacturer to the world's biggest auto market. So how does China play into all of this? Because this has been, I feel like, the area of the of the world where so many global automakers have been kind of salivating over, that's where we're going to see our growth. But China is also dealing with some things that may be pushing, ultimately, car sales down. Right. I mean, so many people thought, well, no matter what happens, because we, we, you know, it's hard not to say that developed markets are mature from an auto standpoint. And therefore, I mean, there's only so many, you know, I was going to say there's only so many cars you can drive at one time, but (laughs) you can certainly own a lot of cars at one time. And that's been the uh, thing that's, you know, helped the auto business in the U.S., where multiple autos per household are sort of a commonplace thing. But it's expensive in China to own a car. It's expensive in China. So what China has been doing, is uh, making it more expensive to have a car. One of the, the you know, China had a really big growth spurt in cars. Mm-hmm. I mean, between 2007 and 2017, the Chinese uh, the auto market grew at a 12 percent annual rate. That's huge, double di- 
double-digit growth in that type of business is sort of unheard of, except in developing markets. So it was great. However, last year, the Chinese auto market shrank by over 4%. Big change. Big change. Something has happened. And one of the big things is this, the uncertainty over trade, but it's more than that. A big thing that happened is also the notion that mobility services have taken off Mm -hmm. there much more than here. There's a company in China called Didi, which Mm -hmm. is a ride hailing service, and it is massive. There's a stat that that jumped out at me, 30 million active users a day last year, almost all of them in China. Correct. I mean, it is is the Uber in China. However, it is the company that bested Uber and ran Uber out of China. Right. And more importantly, Didi last year had more rides in China than Uber had globally. I mean, this is an amazing business for them. It's amazing. And the thing is, though, that so many people ride share in China because China has become a big place for mass urbanization. I mean, you sort of forget that Beijing alone has more people than both New York and L.A. combined. And Beijing isn't the largest city in China. And what's interesting, too, though, I should point out, right, foreign automakers are downsizing in China, but there are some. I think GM is adding models. GM is adding models, but uh, Volkswagen is adding plants. I mean, a lot of people are sort of like, well, if anything happens in this business, it has to happen in developed markets, so I'm still going to throw more plants there. Longer term, though, that has impacts on things like the profitability of them. And, you know, are you going to have to cut prices when you keep throwing capacity into a marketplace? One last thing, just looking at while we're talking China, Let's just talk about Beijing real quickly. Um, they've got a lottery, right? So unless you win the lottery, you can't have a car in it, Beijing. It is very difficult. I mean, and the, they have a lottery. And in a, in, a, in a city with over 20 million people, they're only allowing 100,000 new cars to be registered this year. So you go small in small percentage, small percentage. You go in the lottery and often it takes years and years to win a spot in the lottery. They also allow you not to have to go in the lottery if you buy an electric car. However, you have to get in line and wait. And currently the wait is about eight years to be able to buy a car if you live in the city. People used to think, well, what I'll do is I'll register my car outside the city and still keep it here. But they've stopped allowing that. So much going on that's kind of pushing back on the auto industry. Jim Ellis, editor of Bloomberg Business Week. Thank you. Thank you. My co-host, Jason Kelly, was in Berlin this week at Super Return. Super Return is the largest private equity gathering in the world. And he caught up with some of the biggest names in PE, from Michael Araghetti, from Aries, and Bruce Flatt from Brookfield. He sat down with the global head of private equity at Blackstone, Joe Barada. Here's some of that conversation. So, Joe, we woke up this morning to all these headlines coming out of Vietnam, out of Washington, out of London. How is there so much optimism here then, given what's going on in the world? Because this place is buzzing. Yeah. Well, I think there's always a lot of noise out there. And, you know, our job is to think long term, buying a good business, holding it through a cycle. Uh, Can we make adequate money? Can we do something to the business to improve it? And we tend not to focus too much on the short term noise and what's going on in the geopolitical sphere. So you've been meeting with a lot of investors here. 2,500 people gather here in Berlin just about every year, meeting after meeting after meeting with your limited partners, the biggest investors in the world. What are they saying to you? What's their biggest concern right now as they continue to give you more and more money? I think people are, are really focused on where we are in the economic cycle. How close are we to a recession? Our views on the valuation and capital market cycle, uh, valuations have been elevated for a while. Um, But it's mostly about the economy, what could change it, what could lead to a recession, particularly in the United States, which is really driving uh, the global economy. And what's your answer to that? What what do you think about recession? As we look at our portfolio, um, there are small pockets of weakness, maybe the auto build in Europe and China and and, um, at some point in the U.S., uh, housing strong, uh, employment strong, consumer spending uh, seems to be strong. Uh, there's certainly a deceleration in the top line growth in some of our companies and you're seeing in the overall market, but we're not seeing the signs, the telltale signs of a recession in the near term. So Europe is especially interesting, obviously, to, to people here, but also to you. You sort of made your bones in a lot of ways uh, in London. You ran Europe uh, for Blackstone, did some of the seminal deals for Blackstone, Legoland, Madame Tussauds, putting it all uh, together. Merlin Entertainment, uh, I believe, was, was that deal. You were intimately knowledgeable about that market. Brexit, obviously high on the mind uh, of folks there. How do you look at Europe right now? 
I mean, Europe, I think, has been, the recovery of Europe has been a bit of a disappointment in terms of the, the amount of economic growth. Brexit was uh, unforeseen uh, and is an issue. I think as you look at the UK, you want to you price things with a little more margin for error. We're investing in the UK. We think it's a great economy. Um, but there are some unpredictability. So maybe you're going to pay a lower price than you would have in a pre-Brexit world for some more margin for error. For us, Europe is a selective market. We have to find a company that we really think we can do something fundamentally to to transform it. Growth is going to be harder to come by uh, in the European in, um, economies than in the U.S. So four years ago, I was going back and I saw that you name-checked Warren Buffett on the stage here. And you talked about you know, long-term capital. Yeah. How is that process going of sort of raising money that you hold for longer and still are able to deliver the returns that your investors inspect? Well, we began the discussion with our investors about six years ago about a different structure to hold a certain kind of asset. Every other asset class, credit, real estate, has multiple structures to own different kind of assets. Safer assets are afforded a lower cost of capital. Private equity had one structure. You hold assets for three to five years, you hope to generate 20 plus percent returns. And so we created a vehicle uh, and we raised about $5 billion uh, three years ago to buy really high quality companies with high predictability and hold them uh, for a decade plus. And it's gone really well. We've made three investments. We're about to make our fourth. Uh, and I'm sure we'll be back out with another um, vehicle. You talked a little bit about valuations uh, in Europe. Take us back to the United States. Are, are you seeing any weakness there? Because prices have been yeah. pretty high for quite some time. I think um, in the last year, uh, wide swaths of the, of the market actually have been repriced. GD, smaller GDP growth businesses, industrial concerns, uh, were trading 20, 30% higher a year ago than they are today, even with the recovery uh, in January and February from, from the December lows. So I think so, some sectors have been repriced, and it takes a while for that to translate into the private markets. And I think sellers of assets, of certain kinds of assets, are going to have to realize prices have come down. Fair to say you could use a little more volatility to, to make some deals here? For sure. Volatility is the friend of a, of a buyer of assets, yes. And so as you look at 19, are you a net buyer or are you a net seller? Um, I think we'll probably sell and buy in, in equal increments. We have a, a mature portfolio of assets from our sixth fund, which are, are ready to be harvested and the markets are open. So we try to be disciplined sellers as we are a buyer. Um, the, the buying market right now is a little tougher because valuations are elevated, particularly for higher quality, higher growth businesses. So we have to be really selective and keep our discipline at this part of the market. Briefly before I let you go, dry powder, it's always on the mind. 1.2 to $1.7 trillion out there industry-wide. How much do you worry about that wall of money that needs to be put to work? I worry less about that, to be honest with you. Valuations are a function of where the public markets are trading, not the undrawn capital in private equity uh, hands. There's always undrawn capital. So I think it's about the capital markets environment less than undrawn capital and dry powder. And briefly, interest rates, how much do they worry you? I mean, it could be a black swan if rates, long-term rates were to, were to really spike up, but um, I, don't, I don't think that's going to happen unless there's a lot of growth in the U.S. economy. That's Joe Barada, Blackstone's global head of private equity, speaking to Jason Kelly at the Super Return Conference in Berlin. So U.S.-China trade definitely on investors' minds this week, taking a breather, though, as President Trump extended a deadline for additional tariffs on Chinese goods, which gave our Sean Donnan a moment to think about what happens between the two countries may have deep implications on the global trade system and rules that have been in place that might be now at risk. Sean Donnan covers all things trade and globalization. Uh, Sean, interesting week. U.S.-China trade still front and center, even though I feel like the conversation dimmed down a little bit this week. You did take a big picture look about what happens as a result of this deal, what kind of implica implications it might have on kind of how the world approaches global trade going forward. Yeah, no, I think we often think of this as a kind of bilateral conversation between the U.S. and China, but we, in doing that, we forget that these are the world's two largest economies and that when they have a con conversation, it has consequences for the rest of the world. And uh, I, I think even the administration hasn't really thought through uh, how this is going to play out uh, in the future. And we're hearing already from Europe and from Japan and from other places a lot of concern over how, uh, particularly the way the U.S. 
U.S. and China are kind of locking up uh, the series of purchases by China to address the trade deficit, how that might affect the way trade flows around the world, and also how it may undermine this system that the U.S. spent decades trying to get in place. Well, let's talk about this this, sest- this system uh, of trade, because you mentioned managed trade, that maybe folks are getting a little bit more worried about managed trade. What's been the system in place? And give us kind of some of the history here, the history lesson of kind of how things, you know, kind of got put into place a few decades ago and how we've kind of followed that script since. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the the astonishing things is the history here. When we uh, think about Donald Trump and his approach to trade, and this was one of the big uh, narratives that came out of 2016 in his election and his use of trade in that election, uh, that he was somehow reinventing the debate, that he was moving the debate. Actually, when you look at the history, the themes that he that he has put out there, uh, the kind of the, the focus on a more transactional approach to trade, uh, the idea that, that a president should really Really be kind of a salesman in chief for the U.S. Uh, that's something that's been there uh, through history. If you go back to, I think we often forget that the Boston Tea Party wasn't just about <laughs> British taxes; it was also about Chinese tea. That was right. the, the 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 tea in question there. So, uh, presidents and, and uh, uh, politicians here in Washington have been trying to define that relationship uh, with China for a long time. Right. Since World War II, though, uh, the and and this is a debate that was kind of resolved in the 1930s during uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt's uh, presidency, uh, there was a, there's been a focus on setting rules in the world and then allowing the market uh, to get to work. And that's where we get the, the idea of free trade from. Uh, uh, let's set some rules and then let's let the market, uh, let's let people compete uh, under those rules. Uh, and what Donald Trump has, is increasingly doing is focusing on, on uh, an old, fashioned version of, of trade, a much more 19th century version of trade, which is something called managed trade by the purists. The idea that a government can negotiate uh, specific purchases for specific goods uh, with another government and that that will uh, set the framework for a trading relationship. Well, and that's fascinating, especially when I think about, you know, we're so focused on what ultimately happens between the United States and China, Sean. Uh, and there are some complicated issues, some 21st century issues like intellectual property and uh, kind of the global reach of technology that complicates all of this. But I do think about we've got, you know, trade agreements coming up uh, with the European region as well. And you do wonder what might be the implications for that. Yeah. So, I mean, one of, if if there is a, a big uh, series of purchases, for example, of, of aircraft, of Boeings uh, by China as part of a, a trade agreement uh, with uh, Donald Trump, that is going to result in a loss of market for Airbus, uh, uh, the big European competitor. And the EU would have the right to say, wait, hang on a second. That's not fair. You're, you're not playing under the rules that we have in the global trading system. Uh, you are negotiating this kind of mercantilist deal, uh, and we're going to challenge that. So that could lead, that's one way in which it could affect things. The second thing is we're already seeing uh, a way that the Trump administration is trying to take this managed trade approach uh, to the European relationship, and it is now threatening auto tariffs, for example. That Mm -hmm. very much is aimed at reducing the imports from the EU of, of cars, of Mercedes, of BMWs, et cetera. Uh, and that is uh, a, a way of, 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 of managing trade. That's a very old-fashioned and, and mercantilist approach uh, to trade. The Europeans object to that strenuously. We saw Angela Merkel at the recent Munich Security Conference really talk about this as an existential issue for the German economy, which is a very export-dependent economy. Uh, and so, you know, it, it's worth thinking about that transatlantic alliance and how Donald Trump is 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 testing that and right. it's another you know that isn't that is a negotiation that will get underway still hasn't gotten underway really uh will get underway later this year and one of the things casting a big shadow over mm-hmm. over it is anything that donald trump does with china right those auto towers just one of the other things that are kind of pushing back on the global auto industry which is which is what we also get into in the magazine uh, big time this week let me just throw in one more thing because i feel like there's so many big things going on in terms of global trade and just globalization 
situation generally. North Korea, the meeting between uh, the second meeting between President Trump and the North Korean leader. How does that kind of fit into your thinking about global trade flows? Because there was talk certainly this week about uh, North Korea signing some other deals to buy, you know, American goods and so on. How does this fit in? Yeah, so, so there's two ways that fits in. The first of all, the first is the, the kind of the criticism that we hear about uh, Donald Trump's dealings with North Korea is very similar to that we hear about his dealings with, with China, and that he's going to, he's more focused on cutting a deal than he is on the substance of mm-hmm. any deal. We'll, we'll see where that goes. Uh, we've still got some ways uh, to play. Uh, there's still negotiations happening with China, and we, we really don't know what the substance is of the deal, so it's hard to judge it so far. The second piece is one of the, the, the lines we've heard from Donald Trump this week uh, has been that uh, North Korea should look at Vietnam uh, as an example for its, its future economic development. And that's really uh, kind of ironic, actually, because uh, <laughs> Vietnam's uh, economic uh, uh, success over the last two or three decades has really become, uh, has really come on the back of its embrace of free trade mm-hmm. uh, and of the very global trading system that Donald Trump has been targeting for the last couple of years. Yeah, kind of ironic and, and, and fascinating to point out. I'm showing a lot going on and you covered it uh, so well for us. Thank you so much. Thank you. So the business of ski resorts has definitely evolved over the past couple of decades with two notable and large players emerging. It's something the magazine has reported on before. And this week, reporter Kyle Stock goes deeper into the business of skiing and selling lift tickets. I've got to say, you're a skier, aren't you? I am, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I wondered about this story. That's how it came to me. I All right. Think. Well, tell me, like, what what did you see that was going on in the industry? Because we know there's been a lot of private equity money in the yeah. ski industry, a lot of things changing. The business model is always often a structure around real estate. So they use the mountain to sell condos, that type of thing. Right. Um, but in the past 10 years, there's really this awareness that maybe the skiing's enough. If you structure the properties right, if you own the right stuff, if you kind of group uh, the tickets together and get this sort of network effect going where you can get skiers moving across the country and staying at your different resorts and kind of there's a there's a collective momentum to it. And I feel like there's strength in size. Yeah, there's strength <laughs> so in scale. Take us to, right, exactly. Take us to Vail, right? Because it was around the financial crisis. Yeah. They started to do some interesting things. So Vail went public in 97 and they started buying resorts and kind of making this model work. So there's not a lot of cost savings around owning a bunch of resorts. You still need, you know, if you have a $400,000 grooming machine, in one mountain, you can't just move it to the other mountain. You, you need Easily, a bunch of different right. stuff. Um, but there is synergies with financing, sort of the cost of money. And then they, they were able to sort of make the math work on these network effects and get this sort of the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. So, well, what's fascinating is about these passes that they have created, right. these mega passes, right, that you buy, but you have to buy them really before the season starts. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that, because that I feel like has changed the financial equation and story yeah. of the ski industry. So the thinking was always to get that daily lift ticket price as high as possible. Right. Um, but with the cheaper pass, they were giving up some revenue, seemingly, but they're getting people to commit early. So they take some of the lumpiness out of the business model. They get a bunch of revenue over the summer, frankly, their slowest time. And they get people committed to skiing before the snow even starts falling. Um, so they know that revenue ahead of the season, essentially. Right. So they stop selling those around Thanksgiving and they've locked in a huge chunk of their revenue for the year whether it snows or not. Uh, so it's a really powerful model. It was kind of a contrarian thinking when it came out right. um, in the mid-90s, but it's only proven itself out. Uh, well, well, tell us about the guy behind it. Was it Rob Katz? Rob Katz, Tell yeah. us a little bit about him and, and so his role in this. He's uh Wharton-educated, very Wall Street guy, came out of private equity, had a bit of a uh, you know life reevaluation after 9-11 and moved out west. And he had been on the Vail board, become CEO, very smart guy, um, very focused guy. So the the original Epic Pass, which is Vale's product, right, was was sort of his idea and kind of changed the industry. And from there, all the other resorts that were independently owned started trying to f- kind of cobble together something similar and form these coalitions and try to partner. And right. but they weren't ever able to sort of match the gravity of Vale until two years ago that they this other uh, roll-up happened with this company, Altera. So tell us about them, right? Because now that's the other big player. Yeah. So it's basically three companies that each owned a couple ski resorts. 
And then there was a fourth company called Interwest, which was, I think, seven or eight resorts at the time that had been in trouble, was private equity owned, and they were looking for an exit. Right. So these three companies got together um, and said, hey, let's let's smush our mountains together. Let's buy this fourth company. So overnight, there's a company the size and scale of Vail. And they, too, have a pass. They, too, have a pass. This winter is their first. It's funny. In reading your story, it felt like there were a lot of folks that wanted to partner with the second company. Right. Because, and kind of go up against Vail. Yeah. Tell me about kind of the personalities of each and, and how these two are playing out. Yeah. Businesses. So, Vail is very, I mean, they have a model. They have a strategy. Um, the knock on them is that they're a little homogenous, which they take issue with. Right. Um, they argue that all their resorts are still very unique, and that's true. But they do all wear the same color parkas, and you know, there's some there's some batching on food and that kind of thing. Um, Altera is run by this guy Rusty Gregory, who's very much there's kind of a ski bum vibe to him. Yeah. Um, he came out of University of Washington. He was a linebacker. It's very laid back guy. Knows everybody in the industry. Very friendly dude. So, And then was working, right, at a ski resort? Yeah, he was a lifty after college and then just kind of worked his way up. I mean, obviously a very intelligent man. He's um, now part owner, right? Now part owner and he's CEO of Altera. So when this roll-up happened and this company overnight just kind of formed, he takes the reins and then he just kind of starts going through his Rolodex and calling all his ski buddies through the industry. Um, so there's this sense that... Altera, in partnering with these mountains, Vail generally likes to own the mountain, not partner. Yeah. Altera says, hey, we don't mind if we don't buy your mountain. We just want to work with you, and we want you to honor our past. So. Right. And then they get a piece of it. Yeah. It yeah. sounds like from your reporting, once it started, everybody was like, all right, I got to act yeah. really quick. It happened very fast. Um, interesting story, and I'm sure as a skier, it was a fun one to report It was on good, yeah. In terms of what's going on in the industry. Kyle, thank you. Thank you. We're here with Pursuits editor Chris Rouser, opener to Pursuits this week. Chris is the pursuit of hot springs in Idaho. I got to say, this is something for the bucket list. Yeah, it really is, and it's you know it's not something you necessarily would think of. Uh, fun fact: summer after college, I biked across the country. Okay, and when I was getting through Wyoming and Idaho, I, we came started coming across all these hot springs on the side of the road, and this was something I didn't really know about. You know, you know about like the geysers in Yellowstone, right? But you sort of don't know that America has these amazing hot springs up in the hills all across the country, but especially in Idaho. I had no idea, to be quite honest. Yeah. And they're, you know, they're kind of scattered between uh, Boise and Idaho Falls in this one little area that we talked about. And so um, our right, we sent our writer, Matt Gross, who's an amazing travel writer and has been all over the do world. Do I really have to do it, Chris? Come on, Chris. Do I have to go to Idaho and find hot springs? And okay. he knew something about it. So, um, so we actually sent him on this hot springs trail. And there's a book, The Complete Guide to Idaho Hot Springs, which he took along with him and basically just spent a few days hunting in the winter and when it's cold to find these hot little oases in the mountains. What's fun to read is his experiences, right? Because sometimes he's got to like take off his clothes, not get nude completely. Yeah. But anyway, take off his clothes and then he's walking through snow and then finding the hot spring. Yeah. And you get in these hot springs and some of them, sometimes it's like a pipe feeds like sort of a cauldron that's man-made that you get in. It's like a hot tub. Yeah. And sometimes it's just pools in the woods off the side of a stream. And so inside the water, sometimes there's hot currents and cold right. currents. And you got to find your little spot and there are people there sometimes so you know you're making friends with people he said he ran into a couple you know most people wear bathing suits some people are only wearing their beards and their tattoos <laughs> you know people bring beer they bring food he said he brought a ham sandwich one day and was like just with this view it was the best thing i ever ate that ham sandwich he talks about kind of um you know the one that everybody aspires to it's called is it gold bug gold Hot bug Springs? yep Tell us about that. So Goldbug is, uh, you know, it's up at like a sort of a two mile trail when he got there. So you have to hike to get there. You got to hike to get there. You got to work yeah, for yeah. your, for this relaxation. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, yeah, it's, it's sort of legendary. And when he got up there, it's a bunch of different pools. We have a great photo of it as in the opener of the section. So it's and there's stunning. Just, yeah. It's like you're in these pine forests, but there's this open view of the Rockies. You can see forever. And um, he says, there's just nothing like it. And what's interesting, too, is, you know, here again, I feel like every story, there's a lot of stories this week in the magazine, especially because we talk a lot about cars this week, mm -hmm. but climate change and the environment. And this is one reason why, you know, he says you might want to do this sooner rather than later. Yeah, it, it really is kind of a secret. You know, they're not big destinations. There's only a handful of people when you visit it. So it really feels special and it really feels like you're out in nature. And it is that kind of thing where you're so connected with like 
the smallest change could uh, could mean that these hot springs are changed or are different. You know, more snow melt could mean that they get overwhelmed in the or spring. Mining, or mining projects, mining right? Mining can pollute them, exactly. Yeah, these are actually heated by tectonic plates. Um, and, you know, it's just the, the ground level could totally change depending on uh, man-made reasons. Now, they're not all always warm, right? You've got to kind of you might get into one that's a little bit tepid. Yeah, he got to one that was kind of tepid. Yeah, it, the um, you 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 should you can bring a little heat thermometer with you, which is what he <laughs> did to check. But uh, the spring is actually not the time to go uh, because it, okay. it they can get flooded with the snowmelt. But summer, fall, and winter are great times. What's great about the magazine too? You you mentioned that there is a guidebook. Um, there's kind of a list of what to bring, where you can stay. Yeah, go to Ketchum, which is a town with some really great restaurants like Old School, uh, and sort of some new ones. There's a, a Pioneer saloon which is a great old place to go uh and he um recommends actually staying at a a, a resort called oh i'm forgetting is it name. sun valley lodge sun valley lodge yeah. yeah and uh where hemingway stayed and um he you know we have a whole guide on how to do this and you can do it comfortably or you can do it kind of rustic and definitely drive a four-wheel drive Yes. Yeah, definitely. To get around, to get around. Um, it's a really fun story. And like I said, it's got to be on a bucket list. This may also be on your bucket list, perhaps. Uh, the critic, um, of course, our car guru, enthusiast, and realist, Hannah Elliott. She realist, got- <laughs> did you say? <laughs> <laughs> know, realist. realist. Yeah. Um, she has a great job. <laughs> I love that you laugh. Um, the McLaren 720S Spider. She liked this one. Yeah, she really liked this. So the McLaren uh, 720S is one of the, is a, is a car that's meant for the road, but it's really a track supercar by McLaren. Um, they make uh, they make this car for to, to make people feel a street legal car that right. feels like you're on the track. And they just released the Spider, which is a convertible version. And a lot of times when you put a, when you make a convertible version of a track sort of supercar, it kind of ruins the car. Uh, you have to add weight to actually put the convertible roof on, so that can right. make the car slower. It also sort of wrecks the aerodynamics <laughs> and the lines of the car if you're a real purist. Takes forever to, to kind of get it down, too, yeah, right? Yeah, and then if you're like stuck in traffic, putting down the roof, your super cool supercar suddenly seems like this janky kind of like praying mantis. It takes like 30 seconds sometimes. But this roof actually uh, only takes 11 seconds to retract, which is very fast, even for a normal uh, convertible. And the, it even though it's a little bit heavier, like 100 pounds heavier than the normal than the coupe version, it's just as fast. So it goes from zero to 62 in 2.8 seconds, which is su- incredibly fast. It goes right. to up to 220, 212 miles per hour. Um, and so Hannah just, she really liked the convertible version of this car, even more than she liked the coupe version. It was so funny because in reading it, I thought, oh my God, she's writing so much about this roof, but this <laughs> really impressed her. Yeah. Right? Well, because usually the people don't like it. And it, so this, the roof that she had was electrochromatic grass, glass rather, which means that you can push a button and you know, those tinted windows that go from sort of being see-through to slightly tinted to totally tinted uh, with the push of a button. Um, It's very effective and it can make you feel like you're in a convertible even when you're not this glass roof. Um, And it's just very effective and great visibility, which sometimes is a problem. I love that she wrote um, how she said, I guess, driving around in it was so complete that at every touch point, feet, hips, shoulders, hands, the car might as well be an extension of my body in the machine form. Yeah. She loved it. High praise. High praise. And there's extras. I always love this. Um, or the non-essentials. Oh, yeah. Right? The the parking camera and some other things. Yeah, the Bowers and Wilkins surround sound. Uh, there's carbon fiber racing seats. Yeah, there's those 360 parking cameras. And these, and supercars like the 720S, like the original coupe version, can be kind of raw. They can right. be kind of actually hard to be in for right, a while. Right. And um, Hannah said that this this version, is, which is $315,000, uh, it's a little more expensive, um, is, is actually noticeably more comfortable and more easy to be in for a long period of time. I told you she's a realist. Yeah, she's very realistic. <laughs> uh, what's really real is sometimes when I wake up in the morning and I realize how tired I am, I cannot believe you did not reach out to me to help you with this section. Oh, my, I'm so sorry. We the did, beauty we did section. Uh, it's all about eye creams. Yeah, so the um, we've been following this trend of multi-action uh, face lotions and creams just in general because it's a relief, you know? Like if you are a skincare person having all your products in one little tub. I was going to ask you about that because you helpful. guys have done several sections on this. Yeah, we've done a few. We did uh, We did a sort of a focus on yeah. just general face lotions and now business. we're doing eye creams. Yeah. And um, so we tested 30 true, 32 multi-action creams. We distributed them you too? throughout the office. I did too. Oh yeah, I'm a big skincare person. <laughs> um, you know, from a $45 one from Solavi to a $230 one from Valmont. And we found the ones that sort of worked the best. And some people say that eye creams are kind of a myth actually because, right. um, you know, really what 
it's you're seeing your dark circles are sort of blood vessels and that's kind of what your skin looks like. Yeah. But um, our skincare writer is a firm believer in them actually. And there are things that you can do uh, to reduce dark circles and wrinkles around your eyes. And these really work. Was there one that you liked? Uh, yeah, tested. I tested a bunch, you know, the ones that I tested didn't actually make this list. They were not the better ones, but, um, we really love the Dr. Paracone MD, uh, essential FX smoothing and brightening cream. We liked Jerlique, which is a great brand. And, uh, Solavi also was, um, has a phytoquant de-stressed eye contour cream, uh, which has cow colostrum actually, which sounds fine. extreme. Great ingredients. <laughs> yeah, but really works. Um, I know our producer is going to love that one. Oh, good. Yeah, we'll talk. He's, in, he's into skin cream, <laughs> skincare, I should say. Um, last but not least, the one. And you guys do a giant handbag to carry all. And just as I was trying to downsize, what's up with this? This thing's so, huge. Yeah, the trend you'll see on runways for the past couple of years, especially now, is humongous carry all a bag. So for men, it's like little tiny crossbody bag <laughs> and like a fanny pack. For women, it's it's an ad- additionally this huge kind of uh, junk bag, basically. And Marnie makes a structured one. It's a big rectangle. It's 10 inches tall. It's 19 inches long. And that actually uh, is almost twice as long as sort of the normal size handbag. And it's just to throw all your junk in it. And, yeah. uh, and, and But it's also very chic and fashionable. And, and the structure of the Marnie one means that it doesn't look schlumpy. I mean, the one in the magazine is this gorgeous blue. Yeah, we really like it. Not inexpensive, is it? No. No, it's uh, it's almost thirty two hundred dollars. All right, is there other ones out there kind of doing the same thing? Yeah, there now, are. I'm other kind ones. of doing a buy a backpack thing right now, but tell me. Well, a backpack <laughs> is good for your back, and I'm also a, like yeah. a two strap person because I screwed up my back with a messenger bag. But we've got we talked about one from Gucci, uh, Yves Saint Laurent, who just had a very cool runway show yesterday. They have yeah. one for twenty two hundred dollars, and Bottega Veneta has one for almost ten thousand dollars. If you are into that. All right. Well, I'm trying to downsize, but I do like to carry a lot of junk. Just get one. Just get one. <laughs> I can just throw everything I own into it. Chris Rouser, fun talking to you as always. Thanks. And that wraps up Bloomberg Business Week's weekend podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. For Jason Kelly, I'm Carol Masser. Be sure to tune into Bloomberg Business Week Radio live Monday through Friday starting at 2 p.m. Wall Street time. And if you can't catch us live, well, check out our daily podcast for the ride home. You can find it at iTunes, SoundCloud, and at Bloomberg.com. And you can get this week's edition of the magazine. It's on newsstands now. We'll be back next week at the same time. This is Bloomberg.